Church, if you haven't already joined Shane there in Romans chapter 12, it would be worth your time this morning to grab a copy of God's Word, the Bible you brought. Uh, If you don't have one, maybe this is your first time in church in a very long time, that's okay. Uh, We'd love to give you one if you'd like one. We have several available at the Connect table this morning when we leave. Uh, There's also going to be the opportunity just to follow along on the screens today. And so if you don't have a copy of God's Word physically or on a phone or a tablet, feel free to use whatever you'd like to. Uh, but we want to make it as easy as possible on you. And I want to speak to you, especially if this is your second time with us, if you began with us last week. Uh, I know from my own, uh, how, how should I say this? Uh, we'll just leave it without an adjective. My own dating history, I know how kind of sensitive the second date can be. And this is kind of the second date if you were here with us for Easter for the very first time last week. And so hopefully we've been as normal as possible so far. I know the cameras don't necessarily help. Uh, But I really appreciate you guys being willing to be back with us this morning. We're going to be back in the series that we've been for about four weeks. We'll continue on today and the five weeks following today as we try to discuss and discover what did Jesus mean when he invited the disciples of his day, the word that we've used is apprentices, to follow him. Not just to gain the knowledge that he has, not just to understand what he was saying, but to become like him by living the life that he lived, by emulating him. Before we jump into those principles, I want to make two quick reminders to you. This is specifically for those of you who are church members. Uh, We are going to be having a business meeting on May the 5th. That's a Thursday evening. It's about 10 days from now, even though that feels like it couldn't possibly be this close. Uh, We'll start at 6 p.m. that evening. We will have childcare, and that is Cinco de Mayo. So the word on the street is we will be eating tacos together. You can plan for that. Uh, Three items of business that we're planning to discuss. One is our next elder candidate, Russell Mabry. You may remember that Russ had previously been a deacon for about 30 years at Muldoon Road Baptist Church, the church that we recently merged with. We have a short biography of Russ available uh, on either of the black tables on either side of the room today. So if you don't know who that is or what we're talking about, we want to give you an opportunity to get to know him, ask him questions, get to know his wife, learn his story, anything that you feel that you need to do to be fully informed by the fifth for that vote. Second, we'll be discussing long-term use of space at our new campus, at our new building. We need to talk about things like where we're going to put our growing student ministry. Currently, the room that they're meeting in is going to be too small in just a few months based on the trajectory of their growth pattern. We need to talk about what we're going to do in the sanctuary at that building. Is it going to be a dedicated worship-only space, or do we want to embrace the idea of a multi-purpose room? Things like that. So uh, come prepared to hear presentations from your elders regarding our recommendations. Certainly the floor will be open for discussion. We had uh, a previous discussion about a month ago regarding long-term use of space, and we'll be having another discussion. This is the second reminder for you. We'll be having another discussion today. So as soon as the East Campus service is over at 12.30, Uh, You're invited. Anybody who's here, you don't have to be a member to participate in this discussion. We will not be voting. This is not a business meeting this afternoon. It's just a chance for us to hear from one another. And the topic that we'll be discussing is the long-term name of our church. Currently, we're called True North, but we've recently merged with another church, and I think we need to at least ask and answer one time the question of whether or not a new name would be fitting for a new location and sort of a new movement, a new chapter in the life of our church. So you may have very strong feelings one way or the other on that. I think that's great. Personally, I don't. I, I think it's going to be cool to be whatever, whatever church that we decide to be, and Jesus will use us, and we'll find out when we get to heaven if it was better or worse than the name that we have now. That's fine with me. But if you want to come and share, we want to hear from you. It's going to really help our elders make sure that the way that we recommend and present is really considering your personal mindset. So if you can make that a priority today, there will be child care provided. We're not going to feed you just to keep that meeting a little bit shorter, uh, but that'll be at 382 Muldoon. We'll start right at 1230. So we've said so far in this series, and I'm, I'm going to skip a few concepts because I don't want to waste a bunch of time catching you up. You can go back on the website and hear the sermons that you may have missed up to this point. 
But kind of the landing place when we were last together two weeks ago is that there are two paradigms when it comes to what we call spiritual formation. There are two ways that this can happen to you. You can be formed into who you are becoming, either statically, which means you don't participate, things are happening to you, you're being bombarded by messages from culture, the stories we believe, our relationships, the people we're around, our environment, all of those factors, or you can choose to participate what we might call dynamic spiritual formation, which consists of the factors where we find in Scripture Jesus inviting us to partake in a particular action. The writers of the New Testament, primarily the Apostle Paul, again and again put emphasis on not just belief, but obedience that follows belief. And we believe that that obedience is not just because God needs us to do his work. He can certainly work when and where he wants to, with or without us. We believe that the primary thrust of our obedience or lack thereof is its shaping effect on you and I. That if we do actually choose to do the things that Jesus actually said to do, that the life that we live will be dramatically different, and by extension, not just different, but transformative for us and the people around us. We will go from people who know a lot about God to people who can accurately represent him in the world. People of peace, people of joy, people of kindness, self-control. You remember the fruit of the Spirit. These are the byproduct of us abiding in Christ, and the way that we abide is obedience. We walk with him. So between now and the end of May, we're going to take our time one week per factor to work through the five factors of what we've called dynamic spiritual formation, the way that we participate in who we are becoming. As a quick reminder, here are those five factors. We have first what we call teaching, and teaching stands against the static principle of stories that we believe. Then we have what we call practice. Practice stands against the static uh, routines in our lives. Community stands against the static relationships that we are in. The Holy Spirit stands opposed to our static physical environment and the spiritual realities of the present kingdom of God here and now. We're going to hear from Jesus in just a minute in Mark 1 where he'll say the kingdom of God is nearby, it's at hand. Those spiritual realities stand opposed to our experiences, to the things that we grew up with, the people who have had a shaping influence on us up to this point who we may not be currently connected with anymore. And so today, for the remainder of the time that we have, we're going to dial into that first factor of dynamic spiritual formation. In other words, I'm going to try to help you understand a piece of the puzzle in how you actually become a person for whom the life of Christ is within your spiritual capacity. It may not be that way today. Don't beat yourself up if the kinds of things that we're going to talk about today don't seem to land immediately. You'll remember that one of the concepts that we've pulled from uh, Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, is the broad concept that practices are things that we do not because they themselves are the point, But by doing them, we become able to do things that we cannot do today. We expand our capacity by being consistent in the way that we follow Jesus. You may have heard before, if you've been in evangelical churches for very long, that there's a rapidly growing percentage of Americans who consider themselves to be non-religious. You may have heard them referred to as the nuns before, not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S, totally different idea there. That if we were to give a survey to modern people, let's just start with age 40 and go down from there. It's not that the rest of you don't matter, but frankly, if you're over 40, you are a product of a different cultural formation machine than those of us who are younger than you. You have been poured into by things that were not as off-kilter as those of us who are millennials or Gen Z have been submitted to. But if we were to give a survey to people under 40 that contained answers like Buddhism or Christianity or Islam, or any number of a handful of other global faiths to choose from, the commonly held belief is that more and more people every year would choose none of those things as their religious affiliation. They would say, I'm not a Christian, my grandmother was. I'm not a Muslim, I've seen what the Muslim world can do when it's out of balance. 
I'm not interested in Buddhism because I found my own inner peace by pursuing myself, not by pursuing some other idea of emptying me or of spiritual nirvana. The assumption made from those kinds of statistics is that we as a people group in the West are actually becoming less religious, but I don't buy it. I have read more than one article this year trying to scare me into believing that by the time Gen Z enters adulthood, church as we know it could be over. And I don't think that's true. I believe that we are as religious now as we have ever been. The rise and fall of national and international trends, especially trends that come with a monthly subscription, is proof positive to me that we are still looking for a system to change us. We want something that we can buy into where if we do the right things in the right order for long enough, we have good reason to believe that we will be different. And not just different, but the reason that we put our money on the line is because we actually believe that we might become better by some extension. This is the longing, the drive that motivates us to sign up for things like Weight Watchers or CrossFit or keeps you subscribed to Netflix because there's a fear that you won't be informed or you won't get the entertainment that you need that will somehow relax you or make you better or different than you are. It's also the driving force behind things that are generally positive but are still a system of transformation like Alcoholics Anonymous. What we all live with is this tension between two mental ideas. We have the idea of who we would like to be, maybe who we would say we should have become by now, right? You remember where you were in college. You remember the plans you had for your life? how quickly you were going to get that next promotion, how easy your marriage would be the first five to ten years, right? Everybody else told you no way, and you were like, you don't know me. I'm God's gift to the earth, man. I just got to find the right woman, and everything's going to be easy street. No, it doesn't work that way. So we oftentimes take that idea, that trajectory or projected version of ourselves that we pictured in our mind's eye 10 or 15 years ago, and for whatever reason, even though no one has objectively taught us to do this, we hold it up against who we are, and then anywhere there's a discrepancy, we take that negatively. We go, well, I have this other friend I see on Instagram all the time, and she made $100,000 by the time she was 22, and then she invested it and turned it into a million dollars by the time she was 25. I have $100,000 in debt, which is a kind of money, right? Negative money that's in my personal name, but I'll never achieve that. And we begin to beat ourselves up by believing and thinking and wishing that we were someone different from who we are. For many of us, that tension comes even from who our parents wanted us to be versus who we've turned out to be. And the complications and trauma of this get deep fast, so we're not gonna go much further down that train of thought, but I want you to know if that's you, and you're in the room, and there's the version of you that you actually are, and the version of you that you thought you would have been, or think you should be, or someone else who's close to you thinks that you should be, that tension that you're living with is common. I think it's in all of us. It's possible that there are people who live an Eastern lifestyle who don't experience this because they have worked so hard to empty themselves, but every one of us in the West is building a system that's designed to get us to success, and by its very nature, that system constantly points out our flaws. It reminds us daily, even minute by minute, of the shortcomings in our life and our inability to simply seize the day, pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, and make our American dream an American reality. Now, the Bible acknowledges that tension. It explains the source of that tension from the very beginning by helping us understand how natural for us rebellion against God is. The Bible would argue that that's the root of that, those discrepancies that we feel. We can blame mom and dad, we can blame society, we can blame ourselves, but deep within us there's an angst that we can't heal on our own that is rooted in the fact that we have said no to God and yes to ourselves. And now, because we've done that, all that we're left with is ourselves. Ourselves who cannot solve our own problems. Ourselves who constantly make our lives harder and harder and harder. Interview any Christian you can find in their 80s and they will tell you the biggest problem they have ever had in all of their life is their self. 
We get in our own way constantly. Now, in the scriptures, right out of the gate, God explains how things were meant to be. We get two chapters of that in the whole book, a beautiful picture of how things were supposed to work, and then midway through, toward the end of that second chapter, beginning of the third, things go off the rails and stay off the rails all the way until the end of the book of Revelation. We watch them unravel in real time, and the source of that tension, the source of that rebellion against God is the human idea that we ought to be more important than we are, and we need to make ourselves a bigger deal than we are. And that remains the prevailing human attitude. The source of almost all the strife in human creation comes down to, excuse me, human existence, comes down to the idea that somebody somewhere wants more power than they have, and they think that you ought to spend more time listening to them than other people. That's why we go to war. It's why we want money. It's why we want power. It's often the source of the depraved and perverted versions of our sexual identities that we carry around with us. We want acknowledgement. We want acknowledgement again, and we want eventually for that acknowledgement to be birthed into fame and finally power. The Bible, at its absolute simplest, is a tapestry woven from three stories. The first story is the story of God. As we read the Bible, we get answers to questions like, who is God? What has God actually done? What does he want from us, and how does he get what he wants from us? What actions will he take in our lives to get us from where we are to where he wants us? Very quickly, that story becomes mixed with the story of humanity, as early as the first chapter of Genesis. The Bible teaches us about human beings, that we come from somewhere, that we are made up of something. It helps us understand what that substance is, why we exist, one of the great philosophical questions people have asked themselves since the beginning of time, what we want, and then what we are willing to do to get what we want. If that's too long to remember, you can just plug the word sin in right there because that's the short answer to that question. Then finally, based on that reality that there are things we want that we don't have and we're willing to do things we shouldn't do to get them, there's a destination in mind for you and I. Those choices are taking us somewhere. The trajectory of our life is absolutely influenced by our willingness to compromise ourselves and others to get what we want. And then finally, the third story is where those two stories collide, the story of Jesus. The Bible teaches us who he is, what he has done, what he wants, and what that has to do with us. Now, I would argue, at a very high level, that's really all we need to know to figure out the philosophy of how the world is supposed to work, the origin of the cosmos, how do we treat the planet, how do we treat other people, what's our role and responsibility within the home, within business, within society, how should laws be made, what things should be championed, and what things ought to be punished. But instead of accepting that very simple three-part narrative, we embrace and try to rewrite the true story of the world found in the Bible by internalizing these kinds of things. We reject God's truth, and instead we internalize modern ideologies. All the isms that you hear about in the news and the newspaper. There's a new one every three days. Political agendas oftentimes become our compass guide. And frankly, I think political agendas have sway over us because we believe that if the right people got into political power, we could get back to the truth of the Bible. Yet God never prescribes political conquest as a way to generate newness of life in the lives of dead hearts. We take on moral stances, oftentimes as people who spend time around the church, it's very easy to replace morality with Christianity. We start to fight for things that we call values instead of sourcing our lives in scripture. Self-help strategies are a more modern thing that we internalize philosophical systems, and eventually what we're left with is new identities. We decide to take the name tag that the Bible would stick on us, we erase or scratch out what it says about us, and we write something new. And in 2022, the three prevailing categories of identity that we tend to devolve into is we want to define ourselves based on race, we want to define ourselves based on gender, or we want to define ourselves based on our sexuality. And often, it is a combination of all three in play. The reason, I would argue, 
that most people under 40 identify as none of the traditional religions is not because they're not religious. I believe that we are asking them to choose from the wrong set of religions. The religious landscape has changed. It's no longer about finding a system with one leader who wrote an ancient book. We can't assume that people are interested in that anymore. Now the religious systems that we bow down to are not born a thousand years ago in the Middle East. They're born in each of us at around age 10. And all the grown-ups in our life who should know better and tell us that probably we should submit ourselves to an external set of principles that would define good and bad, right and wrong. Instead, they say, you beautiful, amazing, whole and perfect person at 10 years old, a person we would never let drink alcohol, vote or drive a car, you, you decide who you are. You tell us and it's our job to listen. It's our job to accept that and to do everything in our power to make you more the version of who you think you are today with your 50% formed brain That's our job. That's the way that our society has begun to function. And by all accounts, we're not slowing down in that process at all. Instead of embracing what was widely accepted up until the end of Christendom, which I would argue happened around 2012, the things that we used to believe would be these common data points. And many scholars agree with this. So up until about 2012, if you were to approach anybody on the street, street evangelism, let's take that as an example, and you were to introduce the idea to them that there is a higher power, most of the people you would meet would say, I've at least heard this before. If I have heard it before, it's very likely that I do accept some form of this. I just may be on the wrong religious path toward the wrong idea of deity. Other sort of data points that we tend to accept that the evangelistic movement assumes that you and I and the people around us already have embraced are things like an objective standard of right and wrong, the presence of an afterlife to some degree, and the understanding that certain things, certain egregious actions are actually sin against that idea of God, whoever that may be. Now, whether you know this or not, maybe this is a newsflash for you. As of right now, we have passed the tipping point where I would expect less than half the people that you meet in daily life to accept those data points. The majority of us in the West no longer have room in our lives for any kind of higher power. We're not concerned with an afterlife, even if we think there might be one that exists. We have no objective standard of right and wrong. And as a result, we don't believe that there is such a thing as sin because there's no wrong to do and there's no God to do it against. How do you share a gospel with a group of people like that? What hope do we have to learn from the last thousand years of the evangelical push of the church across the world, the missionary movement of God's church, when the rules have totally and completely changed? Now, you can throw a really gifted professional baseball player out on a basketball court, and he might be able to hang for a quarter or two. But that is not the guy you want on your team in the finals. You want someone who knows the rules, who has the technique, the skill, the ability, and the training to perform at the highest level when the moment is right. Richard Foster says that disciplines are things that make people able to do the right thing at the right time. And this is why I believe so wholeheartedly that being evangelistic in the modern day and being a Christian, a follower of Jesus in the modern day, is not about trying really hard. It's about training really hard. It's about choosing to do the things day in and day out that seem to have very little effect on your immediate circumstances so that when the time is right, you are the right person who can do the right thing. And I believe that our evangelical approach has to, at bare minimum, understand the tools that our enemy is playing with. And so I want to list these things for you. These assumptions are the stories, the static things you are being bombarded with constantly by culture and advertisement and social media and the news and movies and music and everything. 
And I would be remiss to not mention three particular great Christian thinkers who have helped me assemble this list. Tim Keller, Carl Truman, Kristen Coves demay If you don't know who they are, you should look these guys up and read what they write. So the first is this. We're looking at the stories, the narratives that our culture believes that impact us. This is the narrative of identity, that you must be true to yourself. That if you're not, if you allow anybody else to tell you anything about yourself, you have wronged the universe. You have wronged the cosmos. All the billions of years of human evolution have led up to you. You are the next thing on that chart between monkey and man. You are the next chapter in the life of humanity. And if you are not true to yourself, you've betrayed all of us. From a freedom perspective, our narrative as a culture is that you should be free to live as you choose, as long as you don't hurt anybody. Now, nobody can tell you what that means. But that's the wind in our sails, and we just kind of ride it until all of our ships crash together in the middle of the ocean of life, and then we sort of go, well, there is no philosophy at all, and now I'm an atheist, and I'm also depressed, and I guess I'll just die. Happiness, you must do whatever makes you happiest, and you must never sacrifice that for anybody. If you want to source the demise of the nuclear family, here it is. Don't ever let anybody else inconvenience you. Lay nothing down that you enjoy, and make sure that you fight tooth and nail for your own happiness. Science, which I need to say clearly, I am not objectively opposed to the study and measurement of the world and learning and understanding what it means, but here's the narrative of modern science, that the only way to solve our problems is through objective science and facts. In other words, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. This is a direct result of the Enlightenment, what we call empiricism. There must be data. Otherwise, if there's no data, there's no thing behind it. Not true. The last three... First is morality. Everyone has the right to decide what is right and wrong themselves. That lasts about five minutes in any kindergarten classroom. You can observe that. Next is justice. The idea that we are obligated to work for the freedom, rights, and good of everyone in the world. Sounds good. Doesn't work out that way. History. History is bending toward social progress and necessarily away from religion. Here's what Tim Keller has to say about these broad concepts, commenting on the stories that we believe form us. He says, while each of these cultural messages is partly true, and therein lies the danger, church, partly true, and indeed, despite distortions is rooted historically in Christian teaching, they are all theologically mistaken, and they are pragmatically harmful to human life. The stakes are very high in our world. People are not playing games with ideas that stay on the playground. These ideas come into our living rooms. They gather around our kitchen tables. They live in the bedrooms of our teenagers and our homes. And they will necessarily change the trajectory of our lives and even the definitions that we use to try to understand what the world is. That's the power of story. Story gives us a reference point. It helps us make sense of what's happening around us. It teaches us good guys and bad guys and how we know the difference and which one we want to align ourselves with. So what do we do about that? If those are the static stories that are bombarding you, and I would argue they are and that there are more than just those, simply by being online, by choosing to watch the news, by going to the movies once in a while, if that's all inundating your mind, what does Jesus say that could hope to counterbalance that? What is it about his life, excuse me, what is it about his example that would give you and I any reason to think that we can overcome and conquer those aggressive ideologies? Well, I would start in Mark chapter 1. I want you to see this on the screens. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it is, in my opinion, his thesis statement. This is the thing, the drum that Jesus beats every single time that he shows up or speaks up in Scripture. Mark says this, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Jesus has just spent 40 days in sort of a barren, unknown desert wilderness. 
He's been fasting much of that time. He's been in prayer almost all of that time, and he has confronted God's enemy and done what no other human being could ever do. Being given every opportunity that the enemy had to offer, Jesus uniquely in human history told God's enemy, no, I will, I will do it God's way. It doesn't matter how much you sweeten the pot. I will follow the Father. So Jesus, coming off of that immense spiritual victory over God's enemy, comes back into Galilee doing what? Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying these words. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand or nearby. So repent, one, and believe. Repent and believe in the gospel. The central theme of Jesus' teaching The message that his apprentices heard more often than anything else in their three years with him was the idea of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God had come and that the rules had somehow changed. The good news that Jesus spread, that's what we mean when we use the word gospel, wherever he went was that God the creator was retaking dominion over creation. The time of the reign of God's enemy was coming to an end, and at last God would put himself fully back in the driver's seat, and he would begin to correct all of the damage that had been done by humanity and by God's enemy. The response that Jesus expected from the people who heard that good news in the region of Galilee was two things. It was repentance first, and then belief. That's what he says. In Greek, the word that we get repent from, metaneo, means to basically change your mind. And I don't know if that's ever been explained to you that way. Um, It's made from two words, meta, which means change, gnosis means thinking or knowing. The most widely accepted Greek lexicon in the modern Christian academic world says that repentance means to change your inner person, but to do that in response to the will of God. In other words, and this is a direct quote from Strong's lexicon, Strong says it is to morally reconsider. Think about that for a minute. When Jesus introduces the idea that the kingdom of God has come near, that there is a new reality present and the rules of being a human have changed, the rules of the world have changed, what Jesus is asking people to do is to reconsider their morals, to take a look at the stories they believe and rethink and reimagine what it means to be a human. This helps us understand why Jesus would say something like, in the kingdom of heaven, the first are last and the last are first. This is not just an idea that's meant to motivate you to try to be a little more humble at dinner parties. This is Jesus explaining to you that there is a new paradigm in play. You need to imagine what it means to be human as other than having climbed the ladder at your job. That's what Jesus is saying to you. You need to imagine what it means to be human and to be the best version of a human as to be not finding a way to negotiate your way to the head of the table in social settings, but to willingly choose a seat down further at the end because you don't need that anymore. Something has changed. The power dynamic in play that Jesus is communicating about was true. It was necessary if you wanted to be a successful Pharisee to wiggle your way into leadership, to cut other people's throats along the way, literally if you had to. This is why the Pharisees are relatively comfortable having Jesus killed, even though he never laid a finger on any of them. So Jesus is introducing ideas that are not just meant to motivate sort of small changes in our attitude or to get us to try to act a certain way. He is telling us new and better stories so that we can reimagine what it means to actually be people. This is one of the most exciting parts to me of being a Christian, and yet it's something that we hardly ever talk about. We almost always approach Jesus' instructions or the writing of any part of the Bible that's instructive as if it's initially a burden. It's sort of a splash of cold water in our face every single time. And yet we read in the Psalms, the psalmist saying again and again, your word, O Lord, your law, your instructions give me life. And we go, what? It gives me like a headache and heavy eyelids, oh God, when I open your Bible. Because we misunderstand what our objective is. 
We are not trying to bolt on pieces of Jesus' life to what we already have going on. Jesus is inviting us into a new reality, a new way to be human. This means, church, that blindly aligning yourself with God's moral system out of fear of hell or your parents is not what repentance means. It can't be. There's been no moral reconsideration there. In order to repent, you must look your system of life in the eyes and make a choice. Will I keep the system I've inherited from my mentor, from my family, from the people who say that they love me, or will I willingly surrender it, regardless of how good it may feel, and embrace instead a new way of thinking and being in the kingdom of God that is here and now? What Jesus was calling for in response to this return to God, the return of God to his rightful rule over humanity, was for us to rethink, to reimagine. And Jesus didn't just call for this new way to be human, he also modeled it for us. He is the new way to be human. And as we watch him and we listen to him and we experience his mercy and his grace, we are able to open up our imaginations to possibilities available to us if we follow him. Because without Jesus, regardless of how you would answer a survey about religion in your life, your life is basically on rails. It's inevitable. The decisions that you will make, the places that you will go, the people that you will hurt, and the people who will hurt you, these things are as close to predetermined as they can possibly be for us because you and I are highly programmable. If you don't believe that, just take a look at the last couple of years globally and how often probably every, every one of us here accidentally bought into one or another half-truth along the way. We want to know what's happening. We want someone with power to tell us what's happening. We're looking for someone to follow. We are programmable. Unfortunately, right now, the programming that we are receiving is the stories and the narratives that our culture is bombarding us with, and they are coming in loud and clear. The stories we believe are our mental programming. They teach us what we should expect when we do good or when we do evil in the eyes of our culture, and they railroad our future so that we all begin to move toward the same impending self-destruction. We find each other along the way. As a staff right now, we are reading a book. We typically read a book together. We meet on Tuesdays, the second half of our meeting, the last hour. We work through a couple of chapters of whatever book. We have sort of this fun system. I think it's fun. Maybe the staff hate it. They've never told me. But we each bring a book, and we sort of argue for it for a minute, and then everybody votes on a note card. We turn them all over, flip them over, and figure out what book we're going to read. And so the most recent one was recommended by our student minister, and it's C.S. Lewis' classic, Mere Christianity. We've been reading it for a couple of weeks. We've made it through the first sort of section of lectures in the book. And Lewis is very prophetic about Western culture, similar to, if you've ever read a guy named A.W. Tozer, C.S. Lewis can tell where we're headed in the 1940s. The ideas that we have and don't have, even then he can see those data points of God and sin and morality beginning to sort of come untethered and drift away from our common consciousness. But some of the most fascinating discussion that's come out of reading mere Christianity has centered on this idea for us. That if thought and culture, science and popular morality can change as much as they have in the 80 or so years between today and the 1940s when Lewis wrote his book, how much more change can happen in the next 80 years when the technological revolution seems to be accelerating the pace at which we change and embrace this strange new world? Even the next 10 years for us, we should expect the goalposts to move again and again and again on what it means to be right and tell the truth and care for other people and show love. Those definitions will always be in flux. We don't want to have analyzed and understood our culture in just barely enough time to help get the gospel to our peers right before those winds of culture change. Our call, our prophetic responsibility, is to be preparing for the state of the world two or three cultural movements from now. 
Have you ever even thought about that? Are you waiting to find out what bad ideas your kids have before you figure out a way to deconstruct those bad ideas and replace them with truth? Or are you studying the winds of culture to see what's coming? Because it's pretty obvious. It's relatively blatant where we are headed. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Author Jared C. Wilson wrote this in the last week. He said, the ongoing disaster of the world's increasingly confused and harmful understanding of sexuality and identity is heading for an enormous cataclysm. And I agree with him. Christians could be ready with a message of grace and outstretched hands, provided that they're not busy around the throats of the brethren. So Jared's commenting on how we go after each other instead of getting ready for what's coming. Part two, he says, there are important spiritual opportunities around us now, and a gigantic opportunity is coming. I pray that we are not so fractured and distracted that we squander it. Millions of people believing the stories that our culture is telling are setting timed explosives in their own lives by aggressively seeking to create and embrace and eventually embody an identity that is built on their own sexuality or gender or race, they have predetermined for themselves an explosive disintegration of the life that they want so badly. So will we be ready when that happens? Are we planning for that? Are we praying toward that? Are we shaping the ministries of our church, the trajectory that we are on to be there when those explosions inevitably go off? Do you, Christian, understand you have a responsibility to be prepared for that moment with a well-thought-out and nuanced response, not an emotional knee-jerk reaction at how ugly their sin is? Do you hear me? This is the conclusion that the Apostle Paul reaches when he says that Jesus saved all of us from something in Ephesians chapter 2. Hear his writing. He says this, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world. The course of this world is dictated by the narrative stories that this world tells. You were following the prince of the power of the air who wants nothing more than your own destruction, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Will we tell that story to those who leave the failed narratives of culture and begin searching in new places for truth and healing? Or will we not? Will we even have a story to tell that can counterbalance the narratives that our culture is bombarding us with? One of the reasons that we so desperately need Jesus' way to be human, uniquely more than any other kind of self-help or any other religious system, is that Jesus uniquely gives our imaginations a new set of building blocks to play with. Part of why evangelism is effective is because when we tell Jesus stories, we give people the opportunity to break free from all the inevitability that I've just explained to you. We give them a real hope that they can actually be different from generation after generation of their family and all of their peers at work and every celebrity that they've ever seen, achieve great success and then ruin their life with debauchery. What I am doing right now, what we call teaching, is the first factor of dynamic formation. It is God's prescription for how we counter the stories and narratives of our culture and it's aimed at your imagination. I don't know if you know that or not. When you come into this room, one of my objectives is to try to help you think forward differently. Not just to convince you of facts, not just to explain how the Greek blah, blah, blah works and this and that. I try to do that as rarely as I possibly have to, but I want to grab your imagination. That's what Jesus did. Jesus used stories that convinced people to surrender every part of their life and follow him. He did not just come with a textbook of new ideas. And so I'm trying to grab you with story, with concept, with idea and example, the modern reality, the direction we're going, because I believe this more than anything else. If you will give your imagination to Jesus, he will show you a future that is so dramatically different from the one that you would gain for yourself that you will actually embrace his system. 
where Weight Watchers and CrossFit and Netflix and Alcoholics Anonymous have failed millions of people is they never grab the imagination of the person. That person never actually believes that they'll be any different. Their life is so full to the brim with evidence that they will always be the same, stuck in their ways, a product of abuse and damage from other people and their own poor decisions, that try as hard as they might, they make it as far as step three. And then they go, I'm still me, I knew I was. I gotta get a mentor, nobody wants to be my mentor, I guess I'm just trash, I've always been trash. And they go right back to the only source of comfort they've ever had, which is that vice and addiction. Jesus tells a different story. His story says you can be unlike anything you've ever experienced in your life. And it's not about making you better. It's not about Jesus getting you to your own objectives faster than you would have gotten there on your own. The word that Jesus uses again and again, the word that his apostles picked up and continued to spread throughout the known world is the word transformation. The Greek word is metamorphosis, the way that a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, a total essential change in who you are is what's on offer for you. And so we need a story and teaching that's gonna counteract the stories that our culture's bombarding us with to convince us that the steps that Jesus asked us to take are actually gonna turn into something worthwhile. The prophetic nature of Jesus' teachings brings light and color and depth to our humanity in ways that are undeniably intriguing and exciting and hopeful. And that is not the case for any other religious system, whether it be the traditional world religions of C.S. Lewis' 1940s or the more modern religions of politics, sex, and identity. Only Jesus and only Jesus' teachings can paint the future for you in a way that you both want to participate in and believe that by participating, you may actually see that future become your reality. So we'll land the plane here today. I wanna share with you five very practical steps that you can take if you would like to begin to participate in your own formation. This is gonna be starting on slide 22. Crystal, I'm jumping ahead a fair bit here so we can land the plane. These things are things that you can do to influence your mind, things that you can do to begin to counteract the nature of the way that you have been formed by society and culture, and it begins with reading your Bible. So this is important. If you were here two weeks ago, you may have thought that I would never tell you to do this. That's not the case. I told you then and there. I think you should read your Bible as often as possible, but don't expect your mind to produce results that it's not wired to produce. At best, your mind is 20% of you of your ability to be formed, of your ability to participate in your own formation. Read your Bible and read it in two ways. Study it to know what it says and what it's trying to tell you, and also broadly understand the general stories that it teaches. It would be very fair for you if you grew up in an evangelical church to work your way back through a children's storybook Bible and ask yourself if you really know what really happened in each of those stories that you used to have on in the background while you played with Legos and VeggieTales was playing every hour of the day. Just ask yourself if you know the facts. I don't think those are wrong things, and I think the efforts of the people who built those systems were great, but if you're not getting back to the Bible and making sure you understand the nuance and especially the humanity of these stories, you're going to miss a lot of God's mercy. You're going to continue to believe that he's more angry than loving, and you're going to miss his his character. Second, you need to be reading books. The standard here would be to make sure that the insight is trustworthy. So we start by reading our Bible. When we know our Bible well, we are well-equipped to navigate books that comment on society, that introduce new philosophies to us, that help kind of pull apart and explain books of the Bible. Don't tip the scales because it's easier to read a modern book than it is to get into the Old Testament by relying on other authors to interpret the Bible for you. You can intake their interpretation. It's not a waste of your time, especially on areas the Bible does not speak to specifically. But be in your Bible first and foremost. Third, I would encourage you to do what you're doing today to partake of live teaching. 
Be as close to in the room where it happens as you possibly can. There is something about this that God has prescribed that he seems to think is very important. I would argue that live teaching should happen in a local church context and that you should be in community with the people who are receiving the same teaching that you are. Eat the meal together. Fourth is podcasts. I would encourage you to podcast any of these three categories, sermons from other people who are smarter than me, who know more than I do, who live in different contexts, especially if you're in the military and you know that God is moving you somewhere, it would not hurt you to start six months before your departure date, starting to listen to preachers who are in that context. Get to know where you're going. Hear the issues that that preacher seems that he needs to bring up in front of his congregation to address the needs of their specific context. That will help equip you. Second, commentary on culture. Be careful that you don't just embrace culture wars, but listen to wise Christian thinkers, probably older than you. Do what we've done today. Address and deconstruct the wrong narratives that the culture is telling you. And then finally, encouragement. Find a podcast where people just share Jesus wins in their life. Testimony, stories of what God has done. Not just culture war, not just sermons that are super well-crafted to get to a specific point, but listen to people talk about the ins and outs of how Jesus continues to love them and bless them and draw them near. And then finally, one another. So as you participate in relationship, I would encourage you to start by looking for a mentor. It's one of the greatest places where God can put truth back into your life. The teaching of Jesus applied in the life of another person over coffee every Tuesday at 6 a.m. How good does that sound? Find a way to do that. Be in community if you're not. At True North, we use life groups for this. There are other ways to gather with like-minded people and connect and hear from God's word and participate in digesting and responding to that teaching. And then finally, a handful of us might need to prayerfully consider Christian counseling. Finding a way not only to put in what God has done, what is right and what is true, but to carefully and prayerfully unravel some of the wrong mindsets and ideas that we may have picked up along the way. And a person who is trained professionally in the context of a Christian faith that you share could be a great asset to you in this season of your life. So I'll finish by reminding you of a thought that I shared with you two weeks ago, that you cannot think your way to Christ-likeness. You'll never gain enough knowledge that suddenly your body and spirit fall in line. But what you think matters. Your thought life is incredibly important. The stories that you believe shape your life. But remember, as important as our minds are, this is only 20% of how we actively participate in our own formation. So next week, we will move from teaching, which is what we think, into practice, which is really based on what we love, and we will discuss the spiritual power of those practices. I hope you'll be back with us. I want to pray for you, and then we'll finish our time in worship this morning. Father, thank you for your word and the opportunity to dig into it today. I pray, God, that you would be uh, near to us this week in a way that we can perceive. It's so helpful to our faith to sense you nearby. And I know you don't owe that to us, God, and in many ways our faith is necessary because we can't always sense you. But I do ask, especially for this week as we sort of come downhill into the end of a semester, we hit the slump after Easter spiritually, which is often very challenging. We feel the summer coming, but it's not quite here yet. God, allow us to use these hours that may feel so meaningless, purposeless, and empty. Let us redeem them by giving them to you. Let us be people who are found in prayer this week, who are willing to submit ourselves to teaching, to ingest truth, to expose ourselves to it again and again. And I pray for those who haven't found it yet, God, that you would knit us together in Christian community, that we would never walk alone in our apprenticeship to you. We love you, God. We thank you. I thank you for this church and all that you're doing in our midst. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.